We have been on a long journey in this series on sin and judgment. And the necessity is because of the New Testament. The New Testament is often distorted. It's often the case that people are ignorant of the contents of the New Testament and so fixated on love and grace that they don't understand true love and true grace according to the New Testament. Supposing that the New Testament is full of love and grace, but the Old Testament is full of wrath, judgment, righteousness, and impatience from God. God is evil in the old, but He's good in the new, and He's loving in the new. However, these people have misunderstood the New Testament. Every single book of the New Testament they have distorted and misunderstood. That's why this series is necessary to understand what sin is according to the New Testament. What does the New Testament say sin is and it is not? Also, judgment. We need to have a right judgment about what sin is, first for ourselves individually and then for others. First for ourselves and then for others. We have to discern. We need to distinguish. We need to practice righteous judgment. When you judge, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. John 7, 24. We all must have righteous judgment. If we don't have righteous judgment, then on the day of judgment, God will judge us. So we, we meantime, need to have God's judgment in order to practice righteous judgment today. And that's what we are focused on studying in this series. 1 Timothy chapter 3. In the pastoral epistles, which are First and Second Timothy and Titus, he explains many things to young pastors. Both Timothy and Titus were young pastors who ought to know certain things. And now, First Timothy chapter 3. What is it that they should know in reference to sin and judgment? First Timothy 3.1 It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? and not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience." And let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife, and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. 
and by common confession great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. Verses 1 to 7 address the office of overseer or pastor, elder. Verses 8 to 13 address the office of deacon. And in verse 11, he mentions women. That's in verses 1 to 13. Basically, pastor and deacon, with a brief note on women in verse 11. Further, 14 to 16 deal with how the household of God ought to be conducting itself and what they should believe. How they conduct their day-to-day life, but also what they should believe. What they should believe is in verse 16. Aspiring to the office of overseer is a fine work. He says it's a fine work. It's a noble work. It's honorable work. Do we think that pastors, elders, are doing honorable work or dishonorable work? Do we consider this profession, this occupation, this work, the ministry, do we consider it honorably a fine work or do we dishonor it? Do we think that it is a despicable occupation? And it does not only apply to those in leadership, but it applies to everybody. Are we esteeming medical doctors as the highest and most noble profession? Are we doing things like that? Why not the qualified pastor? He says here, it's, the fine, it's a fine work he desires to do. What is our attitude towards the pastorate? Then, what about the qualifications? Notice here, in verses 2 to 7, he has character qualifications. He has attributes of the person, the values of the person, the godliness of the person, the conduct of the person. That's what he has in mind here. Notice what he does not have in mind. Does he have a degree, a bachelor's degree? Does he have a master's degree? Does he have a Ph.D.? Does he have a degree from a reputable institution? Is he tall? Is he handsome? And nowadays she. Is she beautiful uh, in the ministry and in the pulpit? Is she or he articulate? Is he very eloquent? Can he keep your attention? Does he have a good sense of humor in the pulpit? Does his personality come out in the pulpit? So on. These are the things that people are thinking about in reference to the pastor. But we shouldn't be thinking about those things. What's most important? He must be above reproach. Husband of one wife. Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. The able to teach part in terms of day-to-day ministry in the church, that's the only one that is a functional duty. The rest of them have to do with his heart and his quality of Christian living. How is he living the Christian life? 
the one thing he's actually doing is able to teach. He's teaching the people, preaching and teaching the people. Otherwise, is he meeting these qualities? Verse 3, not addicted to wine. Pastors cannot be addicted to wine. If we, if churches just kept that one qualification, that would eliminate many pastors who get drunk. Pugnacious. Pugnacious. To be pugnacious, this is a man who loves to fight. He loves to fight. And maybe even, maybe even physically, get into brawls with people. He shouldn't be that way. He should be instead gentle, uncontentious. Gentle and uncontentious. Free from the love of money. This expression, free from the love of money, it comes up repeatedly in these letters, in the New Testament, and in the Bible, especially in the book of Proverbs. Being free from the love of money. He mentions it right here, and then also in verse 8, both verse 3 and verse 8, fond of sordid gain. Sordid gain is being a lover of money because you're going to obtain the wealth in shady ways, in wrongful ways. A pastor should not ever be that way. He returns to the subject of money in chapter 6, 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10. Because this is occupational, it's natural, according to the flesh, for men to be obsessed with making lots of money in the ministry. Instead of focusing on his own life and the life of the church, the individuals of the church, their souls, and building them up in the faith, they are preoccupied by making sure they're making lots of money. Verse 6, 6, six says, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. 17, 6.17 to 19. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. In chapter 3, we pick up at verses 4 and 5. Chapter 3, verse 4. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? 
manage his own household, if he does not manage his own household well, he cannot take care of the church of God. Verse 5 says, then in verse 15, he calls the church the household of God. That's the comparison. We are the household of God in the local church. So the man in charge should be managing his own household well in order to be qualified to manage the church well. If this qualification were enforced, it would also eliminate many men who are in the ministry. Many of them. Verse 6 as well. Not a new convert. Not a new convert. Lest he become conceited and fall into, into the condemnation incurred by the devil. If a new convert is quickly elevated, he will become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. No new converts in the pastorate. This too is not practiced in many, many places. Somebody might be a convert and then go study some theology, maybe informally, maybe formally, for a few months, maybe a year or two. Let's just say even for uh, three years or four years. And then he has a degree in hand. He submits his resume everywhere. And then a church interviews him, maybe for an hour or two. But let's say as many as five hours. They interview him. They present him before the local body in a meeting or two. They allow him to preach one time or twice. And then the church votes on the man and installs him. If they like him, they install him into office. And he begins his work in, in two weeks or a month later, something like that. Is that enough time? At first, is that enough time for a new convert? He's not really active in the local church because he's been studying in the seminary for three or four years. And when he's full-time studying in the seminary, he's got no time or little time for the local church. He's really not involved there. He doesn't know the people. He's not interacting. He's not doing anything. He might attend, but even then they skip. But he might attend the church for some time, for the three or four years, and then he's qualified to be a pastor. And then the process of evaluation is meager compared to what's here. Because how is that church or the church search committee going to be able to evaluate all these matters within five to ten hours? And sometimes it's less than that. Five to ten hours of interaction with the man. Literally, that's like, and even less in some cases, it's similar to the way businesses hire people. So who is sinning? We who want to stick with this or the people who disregard this? Who's sinning? Verse 7, And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. 
That is, he in the community should not be known as a drug dealer. He should not be known as a womanizer. He should not be known as a criminal, a robber. In the community, he must be upstanding. How many pastors, mega-pastors, have committed some sin? It has been exposed in the media, and he is never defrocked. Or if he is defrocked, it's only for a month or two or three months. But it's an egregious sin, maybe six months, maybe a year. And he's getting paid for a year. And then he returns to the pulpit, whether the same pulpit or another pulpit. He just basically got a one-year paid vacation. Is that the right way to handle it? In the world is seeing this. The outside church, uh, outside people out of the church are seeing this. Is that the right way? It's no wonder that there's no respect for the pastors because a lot of the pastors are wicked men. They fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Okay, the pastor or the elder. How about the deacon? Verse 8. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity. They also must be men of dignity. It's not enough to have a dignified pastor, but an undignified collection of deacons. The deacons also should not be troublemakers, liars, as it says here, not double-tongued. Double-tongued is having a forked tongue. A double tongue is a liar, a deceiver, conniver. He'll say one thing in one situation and another thing in another situation. That disqualifies him as a deacon. The same with addiction to wine and love of money. He should not be fond of sordid gain. Instead, verse 9, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. He should be holding to the faith with a clear conscience. Not a devious person, but truly believing in it. It does happen that there are many deacons who don't actually believe, and even pastors, who don't actually believe what they say they believe. They don't actually believe what they say they believe. And at certain points, they reveal that. And at certain points, if the kitchen gets too hot for them, they walk out of the kitchen. They just leave the church and say, I never really believed it anyways. That happens. But deacons, how can we prevent that from happening or happening less? Verse 10 says, And let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. How do we mitigate the number of defections, the number of apostasies among deacons and elders? 
In verse 6, he says, not a new convert. In verse 10, he says about deacons, they must first be tested. An old convert has been tested. New converts have not been tested. And the same with the deacons. If they are tested, that takes time. Time to determine whether they meet these qualifications. Verse 11. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Who does he mean here when he addresses the women or addresses the qualities of the women? Is he speaking of women generally in the local church? That's one possibility. From Titus 2, 3 to 5. Titus 2, verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. That is a general statement about the way older women and young women should be. Is that what he means here? Well, at least he means that in this context. Certainly he at least means that. But because of the context of elders and deacons, it seems that it at least applies to the wives of the deacons. At least to the wives of the deacons because it's in the middle of the paragraph between verses 8 to 13. The wives of the deacons must be this way. Of course, the average woman in the local church may not be that way because she needs to grow and learn to be that way, the way it is described in Titus 2, 3 to 5. But the wife of a deacon must certainly be that way. And because the wives of deacons must be that way, we should easily conclude the wives of elders should be that way, though he has not specifically said so. And then another interpretation. The first uh, one is certainly biblical. The second one is in this context. But the third interpretation has been held by some churches and historically even by conservative Presbyterian churches. That is, in verse 11, they think the apostle is speaking of the office of deaconess. The office of deaconess. So that the deacons are men, the deaconesses are women, and sometimes the wives of the men. Deacons and deaconesses, two bodies of the diaconate helping to minister for the uh, practical needs of the local church. That's how they take it. The elders part, the Presbyterians, conservative Presbyterians, the elders are only men, deacons are only men, but then there's another collection or group called deaconesses. 
And the deacons and deaconesses are helping with the practical, physical needs of the church. It doesn't seem that that's what the apostle is describing here. It seems that he's describing the character qualities of the wives of deacons in the immediate context. And by extension, for the elders as well, or pastors. Verse 12, he returns to the deacons. He says, Let deacons be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and, a, and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The deacons also must be managing their own households well. Why? Because they have leadership responsibilities in managing the household of God in the local church. If they are not able to meet the needs of their own households in the proper way, how are they going to meet the needs of the local church, the family of God, household of God, in the proper way? And this is a commendable ministry, according to verse 13, also not to be disdained. It says, Those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There are times when pastors, they will jokingly complain about their board of deacons their group of deacons in their local church about how much trouble the pastor has in dealing with his deacons. Open and plain with his contentions with his own board of deacons. It shouldn't be that way. When that happens, there's something more fundamentally wrong in the leadership structure. They should be respected by the elders and by the people because they are living in a godly way. 14 to 16. He tells us why he's writing this letter. Verse 14. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. He wants to visit Timothy, but in case of a delay, he wants Timothy to have these words, these doctrines, these expectations reiterated and in print before he arrives. It's not as though Timothy would not know any of this, but he's writing this as a reminder and as an update on some of the things Timothy has been facing and that Timothy must make sure he is doing. That's why he writes. He says, So that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. How to live in the local church based on who is leading the local church? And what is the household of God? The church of the living God, the pillar 
and support of the truth. The family of God or household of God is also the church of the living God and also the pillar and support of the truth. Who are we preaching? What are we preaching? Not a dead deity, but a living God. And are we about the truth or falsehood? About the truth. We're not about opinions, traditions of men, preferences, personalities. We're about the truth of God. That's where the truth of God is supposed to reside. That's where it's supposed to flourish. That's where it's supposed to be published in the local church. The pillar and support of the truth. Then, in a nutshell, the common confession is in verse 16. He says, He who was revealed in the flesh, or God who was revealed in the flesh. This would be similar to John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and nothing has come into being that has come into being except through Him. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So He who was revealed in the flesh. By that one statement, He is explaining both the deity and the humanity of Christ. Both the deity and humanity of Christ was vindicated in the Spirit. To be vindicated in the Spirit has reference to the fact that his ministry, his public ministry, both his teaching and miraculous ministry, but also his death and resurrection were all under the guidance and influence and filling of the Spirit and he was vindicated in what he was preaching, even culminating in the day of Pentecost. Because as he said would happen, it actually did happen. And his vindication takes place like that. Beheld by angels. Beheld by angels. This, of course, happened during his ministry. In Luke chapter 4, in the wilderness temptation, angels were ministering to him. Luke 4, 1 to 11. In reference to the resurrection, Luke 24, 4, there two angels were at the tomb. They beheld his glory in resurrection. And also, everything he did was observed by angels in heaven even as he's ascending into heaven. Because weren't there angels there at the ascension in Acts chapter 1, 9 to 11, telling the disciples, men of Galilee, why are you looking up into heaven? As though you're going to solve something by gazing up into heaven indefinitely. You're not. So the angels are there instructing the disciples. And the disciples and the angels... Behold, Christ ascend into heaven. So, angelic observance shows heavenly acceptance. God's acceptance of everything that Jesus did in the power of the Spirit.
proclaimed among the nations, evidenced by the fact that it went to Ephesus, it went to Rome, Corinth, Galatia, different and many places. The gospel was proclaimed as Jesus predicted it would be and should be proclaimed. Believed on in the world. That's why the letters to Timothy and Titus, Titus in the island of Crete, Timothy in Ephesus, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Colossians, many in these different parts of the world believed. Believed because God was working in them. And the last expression, taken up in glory. That is a specific reference to his ascension. After he was raised from the dead in a glorified body, appeared for 40 days, then taken up into glory, meaning that there is a transition or an intermediate period between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. This last phrase, taken up in glory, is in a way transitionary for chapter 4. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. So meantime, Jesus has ascended into heaven. Now, between his first and second coming, we have a period called the Session of Christ, where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Many things must happen in that period until he returns. And that's what chapter 4 starts to tell us. So what is that? Let's read. It's going to be verses 1 to 5, but we'll read the whole chapter. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected, if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. 
take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Verse 1, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit explicitly says that in the later times, some will fall away from the faith. Not everyone who embraces the faith truly believes in the faith. He says some will fall away from the faith. They will fall away, turn away, reject, set aside, disparage and discard whatever they say they had believed. They will go away from it, turn away from it. It is from this verse and other verses similar to this that we have the word apostasy. To apostatize means to fall away from what you said you believed. And when people do fall away, what do they follow? They pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons. In other words, they belonged to Satan previously. Temporarily, they get out of the control of Satan temporarily, that coercive control as though one is enslaved and constantly battered and bruised by previous sins. Satan does that to people. But temporarily, there is relief from those sins. But finally, at some point, they go back and they are controlled by the old deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. They just go back to their old ways. By means of the... How does this happen? He explains. By means of the hypocrisy of liars. Liars belong to Satan. John 8.44 The one who practices sin is of the devil. 1 John 3.8 We were controlled by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2, 1-3. So we belong to Satan and Satan's method, Satan's mode of operation is lies, deceit, deception, conniving, craftiness. This is what Satan is. That's what he does. And his people do that. His children do that. The children of the devil are liars. But liars are hypocrites. He says, by means of the hypocrisy of liars. And what is a hypocrite? A hypocrite uses lies to pretend he is one thing when he's another. He puts on a face. He puts on a show. He says one thing, but he does another. That's a hypocrite. And hypocrite's manifestation is hypocrisy, putting on a face. Their method is deceit. 
And notice here, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Their conscience is so fixed, so immovable, so hardened, it's not clear, as 3.9 said, clear conscience. It's not clear, it is seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. When a branding iron is placed on an animal, it sears the animal, puts a fixed impression on the exterior of the animal, on the hide of the animal. That's the way their conscience is. In the wrong way, in the evil way, in the devilish way. In this case, what are the two sins he mentions that these people are so deceived and have fallen away and belong to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons? What are the two sins? Verse 3, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. Forbidding marriage. In the past, in the early centuries after the Apostles, there was a man named Marcion. Marcion, he was a heretic. He claimed to be a Christian, but he denied certain aspects of the Bible and made up his own church. For example, in Marcionism, the God of the Old Testament is evil, the God of the Old Testament is not the same God as the New Testament. There's no Jesus Christ and no gospel in the Old Testament, only in the New Testament and certain books of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is wrathful and righteous. The God of the New Testament is loving, gracious, kind, without wrath, without judgment, condemnation. He's not that way. In the New Testament, he's a God of love. Old Testament, he's a God of hate. So the God of the Old Testament was completely ditched and the books of the Old Testament were completely ditched. And many of the New Testament books were also excised from the New Testament. He only had most of the letters of Paul and a, uh, a portion of the book of Luke. The rest of the New Testament he did not like. And in practical ways, in the local church, he was one who forbade marriage. He believed that all men and all women in his local church should be celibate to be members of the church until the day they die. Otherwise, they could not be saved. Celibacy for salvation. He forbade marriage. Marcy. But he's not the only one. Others have done so over the years. Today, in Roman Catholicism, starting in the Middle Ages, but today, Roman Catholicism, in terms of uh, monks and nuns, they remain single, celibate. In terms of priests, local priests, they remain single. They are forbidden to marry. So is that just a difference of opinion? A, just a different interpretation of the Bible? Uh, just a different denomination? 
don't be so strict about it. Well, why are they being strict about it? We're not supposed to be strict, but they're, they're permitted to be strict with their own people for them to be priests and monks and nuns. But not in our case. We can't tell them that they're wrong. And the Bible tell them that they follow deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. It's not only that, though. Modern, secular, communistic, Marxist culture, woke culture, social gospel culture, also promotes lengthened singleness and disdains marriage. They ridicule it. They, they criticize it. They tell people, you don't need to get married. Don't get married. Yes, you can have sex with each other, but don't get married. Don't do that. They say that. And that's also in new Calvinism today. They delay marriage. Many, many quarters of new Calvinism, not every quarter, but many quarters of new Calvinism, they say, why do you have to get married so soon? Remain single. And that's harming the church. It's harming the church. It's harming families. It's harming individuals. And it's coming from Satan according to verse 1. Another doctrine of demons is abstinence from foods. By this he means abstinence from certain foods. He's referring to dietary restrictions like the Mosaic dietary laws and other kinds of dietary restrictions such as in Romans 14. Eating meat, not eating meat, things of that nature. People who are advocating abstinence are also getting their doctrine from demons. Why so? He says, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. God created all the animals to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So if we have gratitude in our consumption of the animals because we believe and know the truth, why are we being criticized? Verse 4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. Gratitude again. If we give thanks, then we should not be criticized or condemned. It is sanctified by means of the Word of God and prayer. If the Word of God, such as Mark 7, 19, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 14, 1 Timothy 4, 1-5, if the Word of God has sanctified all foods, then all foods are clean. And the prayer, the prayer of thanksgiving. When we thankfully uh, express this to God for what He has given us, then the food has been set aside. The Word of God and our prayer sanctifies the food. And if that's the case, then people should not be quibbling and uneasy about foods. In reference to the dietary restrictions. Who today, because of food preferences, considers the wrong view 
biblically speaking, the wrong view to be coming from the devil. This, that's a serious matter, if we have the wrong view, because it's coming from the devil. And if it's coming from the devil, then these people have fallen away from the faith for these two reasons, food and marriage. Verses 6 to 11. 6 to 11. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Why would he say, in pointing out these things, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus? Because timid Timothy, as he is known in 2 Timothy verse 1, 7, uh, 2 Timothy 1, 7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Timid Timothy might be reluctant to tell people this. If I say it to people, they'll get upset at me. But he's saying, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus in pointing out these things to the brethren. You're a good servant if you preach it. You're not a good servant if you don't preach it. So preach it. These are nourishing words, words of the faith and sound doctrine which you have been following. This is sound doctrine. These are words of faith. This is where we get nourished for our spiritual life. But the contrary doctrines are what? Notice in verse 7. Contrary doctrines, heretical doctrines, those that deviate from the Bible, he says, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. So anything that contradicts the Bible is a worldly fable fit only for old women. Don't have nothing to do with it. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Spiritual discipline is of greater value than bodily discipline. He's not minimizing bodily discipline as though there is no place for it. He's saying the spiritual discipline is more important than the God, uh, bodily discipline. And if you are pursuing bodily discipline to the detriment of your spiritual discipline, then you've got it backwards. Your priorities are wrong. You're, they are out of order. Priorities. And why? Why is spiritual discipline more important? Because it has a twofold benefit the present life and also the life to come. For bodily discipline, it's only for this present life, and then you die, and your body doesn't go with you to the life to come. Not the mortal body and all that it does, it will not go with you in the life to come. So, spiritual discipline or godliness, that is of eternal value. 
The kind of fervor and devotion people have in bodily discipline, if they would simply funnel it in the spiritual direction, can you imagine what it would do for them and those around them? It's all upside down today. Verses 9 and 11. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Having mentioned bodily discipline, he now, in verse 10, returns to this comparison of the physical world. In the physical world, we put our hope, we fix our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men. By Savior of all men, he means the one who is taking care of all men and takes care of their bodily needs, takes care of their nourishment, bodily nourishment, takes care of their maintenance, whatever they need for food and covering to be content. It is God who provides for all men, especially of believers. 12 to 16. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. This is where we gather that Timothy was a youth, at least compared to other men and other men in the ministry. He was a youth. And no one should be looking down on youthfulness when youthfulness is accompanied by speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. There are some young men like that today and in the Bible. Some young men were this way. Joseph was this way in Genesis chapter 39. He was a young man. He was 17 years old when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. 17 years old when he was tempted. And he resisted the temptation. What about King Josiah? King Josiah became king when he was 8 years old. And then when he was a teenager at age 16 and even later in his 20s, he began to be devoted to the Word of God and desire repentance and righteousness in the whole country as the king in his teens and 20s, King Josiah. There are the examples in the New Testament of Timothy here and even Titus. Titus 2 is categorized in the group of young men and as a young pastor. According to Titus chapter 2 and verses 6 to 8. Titus 2, 6. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Having 
address the issue of young men, he then mentions, show yourself, Titus, to be a good example. So, young men are not necessarily unruly men. It depends on these qualities mentioned in verse 12. And what is the reason for these qualities? Show yourself an example of those who believe. God saves not only the old, but He also saves the young and transforms them as godly examples of believers so that others can mimic and imitate what they see in other young people. 13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Public reading of Scripture, exhortation, teaching. Why? Because that's the duty of the elder, according to chapter 3, verse 2. He should be able to teach. Chapter 4, verse 11. Prescribe and teach these things. The people need to constantly have the minister of God ministering the Word of God to the people. 14. The spiritual gift was bestowed on Timothy that should not be neglected. Whatever gifts God has given to us should not be neglected, should not be smothered, should not be inactive, but we should employ them in the service of the local church. 15. Take pains with the, these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress may be evident to all. Take pains with these things. Don't be disheartened. Don't grow weary of doing good. Don't be demoralized. Take pains with these things. This is like the soldier or the athlete or the farmer who has to work hard day and night in order to make progress in what he's doing. Be absorbed in them. That means be devoted. Be immersed in them. It is your life. So be devoted to it to, till the end. Verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Pay close attention to yourself. That's a brief way, a brief commandment explaining the way the pastor should be in chapter 3, 1 to 7 and other things he's mentioned. He has to pay close attention to the way he thinks, he talks, he lives, everything about him. And to your teaching. Be very careful about what you say. Be absolutely certain that you are accurately conveying the truth of God. If you are inaccurate, then you are distorting the Scripture to your own destruction. In 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. So pay close attention to what you say 
from the Bible because when the people hear it, they must know exactly what God says, not what you say. And the pastor should persevere. Persevere. He shouldn't be lazy. He shouldn't be thinking, well, I've done enough hard work. That's not good enough. He's supposed to take pains, be absorbed. Why so? In 15, he says, so that your progress may be evident to all. It's necessary to show progress, progressive sanctification, producing much fruit and proving to be disciples of Christ. It's necessary. And also in 16, he says it in other words. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Thus far, in 1 Timothy, do we consider these standards, these commandments, these qualities, these doctrines, do we consider everything he's been saying here to be issues of salvation? That's how serious it is. Everything he's been saying has to do with salvation. This, following the Word of God as it is presented here, ensures salvation both for the preacher and the people. That's how serious it is. We cannot take it lightly. As people say, everything is not an issue of salvation. Well, how and where does the apostle make a distinction? What do you mean everything is not an issue of salvation? He says so in 4.16 that it is an issue of salvation. Everything he's been saying. He doesn't mean do this to earn your salvation. He means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He means to produce this kind of godliness in your life and in the life of others. And when that happens, you will have assurance of your salvation. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Having the assurance of eternal life is important. How will we ensure it? By following His Word. If we are eager, zealous, diligent to follow His Word, then we will be producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And our salvation will be ensured. This doctrine is the doctrine of the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit. He claims the Holy Spirit in verse 1, 4 verse 1. The Spirit explicitly says, If this is the doctrine of the Apostle of Christ, it is the truth that must be followed, and it cannot and should not be called Pharisaicalism or legalism, work salvation. That's not what it is. It's the expectation of the grace of God that has saved us, that same grace of God sanctifies us until we meet the Lord face to face. It's grace. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. First Peter 
5.12. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.